0: Hello, I'm Luke Turner. Welcome to Why, the podcast that seeks to answer the unanswerable. From cradle to the grave our lives are governed by the decisions we make with even the tiniest choice seeming to have far-reaching consequences it's a wonder we don't feel overwhelmed by the burden of getting it wrong but we're not even in control of all our decisions humans can at one moment be too driven by impulsiveness and desire or the next overthink to the point of paralysis The science of decision-making has been extensively studied, utilised by high-level managerial consultants, deployed in court cases and picked over in therapy sessions. But before I collapse in a heap of anxious despair, I wonder, what are the brain processes that shape our decision-making? Experiments by neuroscientists have revealed that we use the more primitive parts of our brains, known as the animal brain, for decision-making far more than was previously thought. So is that why I decide to give in to the dopamine hit of social media when I'm late on a deadline? Today on Why, we're
1: asking, why do I make bad decisions? What we suggest, for instance, to our students when we teach them about decision-making as a first principle, we tell them in the next 10 days, keep a diary. And every time you're about to make a choice, write the options you had and the conditions you were at. Whatever you can glean from the moment, just write in diary without judging. And at the end of the 10-day period, you rank them. Moran Surf is a professor of neuroscience and business and has been studying decision making for over a decade. It's another kind of thing we teach our students. We talk to them about what we call a red team. Red team is the idea that it's usually a good idea to assign in advance a person that you call your red team. That's a term from the military or easier term would be devil's advocate. That's a friend or someone you trust whose job is to counter your decisions.
0: So, Morant, could you explain what are the main factors in our human decision-making
1: process? Generally, the decision-making process that we use involves two kind of large systems in the brain that is in charge of weighing all the evidence, making predictions about the outcome of what we're going to do, doing an action, and then evaluating whether the action aligned with what we predicted. The farther it is, the more we update. That's what it is. Now, the system that I mentioned is actually comprised of two sub modules that we kind of colloquially call system one, system two, or the limbic system, the emotional system versus the rational executive systems. But essentially, there's two parts. One part that tries to weigh in all the options logically, rationally, deliberately, and really put them in an Excel sheet in your mind that says kind of pros and cons on both ends or yes and no. And another one that is very primitive, very kind of ancient, that relies on a lot of the historical data from your ancestors and how they died from not making the right choices, put together to one decision.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. I think that's, a, that's a very, very direct and blunt way of putting it, I think. One of the things I was very interested in reading in some of your work was the presence of others in our decision making. We can think we're the ones making all the decisions, but I was very interested in the way you've talked about how this isn't the case at all.
1: There are two ways to look at it. One is that the context around us, who is with us, the things we just heard from colleagues, the pressures of time, all of those things leak into our decisions and they impact the outcome. To that extent, we have the advice that we give a lot of people, which is just know yourself know how important is Luke in your decision-making. And if he's very important, maybe he shouldn't be there or he should be there more, you decide. Know if you're a morning person versus an evening person when it comes to decisions. You make better ones in the morning or in evening. Try to make your decisions in those moments. Whether you're a person who makes decisions differently when it's just before the deadline or a lot earlier when you're hungry versus full, you at some point can, after enough choices, figure out what your best decision-making processes are and make sure the context the surrounding, the people around you, the the environment around you are aligned with your decision. And then we also know you tend to be influenced by priors of others. So the classical example from sometime in the 80s shows that if I present to you two choices and one is clearly right and one is clearly wrong, but then I have 10 people come before you and they all choose the wrong one, even though you in your mind know that this is the wrong one, you're more likely to choose it just because you want to conform with the others because you feel that something must not be right in your thinking. And to that extent, it's not that we just make decisions perfectly in isolation, rationally, the best way we can. We're very much tied to who's next to us and how they think.
0: It's interesting you refer to this study from the 80s. I was, I was kind of wondering how neuroscientists research decision making. Could you give us some examples of, sort of experiments and results and, and how you study this?
1: Sure. There's essentially three types, and I'm, some to speak, kind of responsible for the third one. So neuroscientists generally are broken into two groups. Group number one studies decisions in animals, and they create decisions that animals can make. So they put a rat in a maze, and there's a fork going left or going right, and they look inside the rat's brain by putting electrodes deep there when it gets to the fork in the road and they look at the neurons that code for the choice to go left or go right and they see which one fired more how the entire circuit led to the choice that rat make and this is how they study decisions in animals the advantage here is that you can actually look inside the brain because you can open the brain of an animal look inside but the disadvantage is you can't ask the rat afterwards why did you choose left that's type 1 the other category are the neuroscientists study human because you cannot open the brains of humans and put electrodes inside we do it using imaging we put the Person under some sort of a device that measures their brain, fMRI looks at magnetic fields, EEG looks at electric fields, and you have the person sit in front of a computer, let's say, and make a choice. There are, like, say, two items on the screen, one apple that's tasty, one that's not tasty, and you have the person use the keyboard to make a decision, and you look at the brain in the circuits that you can gather from this device and see which circuits are responsible. Those are the two categories that are classical. One, I sit on a very niche category which basically says let's do a mix of the two and find patients who have brain surgery for clinical purposes and during the surgery some neurosurgeon would put electrodes inside their brain so now we have a human being with open brain electrodes inside hundreds of people all over the world who have been subjected to this thing but now we have a human being with neural implant that i can come to and i say hey look you already have your brain open you already have neurons being decoded with a machine from inside. Do you mind having me put a laptop in front of you, show you one apple that's good, one apple that's rotten, have you make a choice, but see which neurons are coding the choice to go right or left to choose apple one or apple two? And then I can also ask you, why do you think you made this choice? And I can now look at the circuits that led to the choice, the choice, your explanation of the choice, and how soon before you made a choice did I actually know that you're about to make it? All of those things are how we study that.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. So this must have thrown up some unexpected results in your research, being
1: able to actually see that process happening. what Can you tell us about that? Sure. So there are many. I'll give you just kind of a handful of of remarkable things we found. First of all, we found something that challenges the notions of free will, which is that oftentimes we can see the choice you're about to make seconds, like three seconds, before you actually... Make them, but before you also experience them. So I see you getting to the fork in the road, and I already see that neuron one is firing, and this neuron codes the choice to go left. And if I stop right there and I ask you what you're gonna choose, you say, I don't know yet. I didn't get to the fork. I already know that when you get to the fork in a second, you're gonna choose left. It's valid because when you get to the fork, if I don't ask you, I see that you make a left turn. And if I ask you when you make your choice, you always say when I got to the fork. You never know that this was the fork. So This is one surprising thing, like the gap between the choice being made in the brain and the choice manifested in our behavior then we also saw that we can sometimes with some precision predict the items the features the properties that led you to make this choice rather than that choice so we see that what drove this choice was say you being hungry and that is what made you choose the item that was very kind of sugary and in front of you rather than wait 20 minutes for the salad but if we ask you to explain a choice we see that the narrative that you come up with is rarely the one that we came up with in your brain. We saw that your desire for sugar is high. I'm very simplifying it. It's it's a bit more complex than kind of really like just neuron one versus neuron two. But for the sake of this conversation, it's enough to understand the, the, the conceptual ideas. We see the drivers, we see your answers, and we figure out that sometimes they're not aligned. There are things that you don't know about your own mechanisms, but you come up with a story always. I wanted this because of I always liked this mint tasting kind of, I don't know, toothpaste, even though we know that what drove it is actually the price. That's kind of another surprise. And I would say that generally one surprise we are constantly kind of finding interesting is the simplicity. We think that, you know, the choices that we make are, are a combination of our childhood and like uh, environmental impact and so on, and they're all true, but to an extent. We can predict a lot of your choices after very little knowledge about you. So if I have Luke for a week and I see his behavior and I kind of see and monitor how he thinks and how he decides, I don't even need any fancy equipment to predict that on day eight of the experiment, what he's going to do is going to be confined to those three options and probably this one most likely and so on. And Luke thinks he's so complex and there's so much thing and turns out that we're a lot simpler.
0: So uh, some of our bad decisions are
1: almost preordained. Are we doomed to make them? So to to an extent, we can do a lot to your environment to kind of navigate you towards a decision, including bad ones. So we call this this field of research choice architecture. That's what companies or organizations that want you to sign up for something are doing to navigate you more closely to one direction rather than another. You see it when you go to buy things online, where the buy button appears versus where the ads appear, at what point is the fee showing up. All of those things are just a way for, say, marketing companies to realize that you're making choices differently when you're already committed, when you're under time pressure. So that's no knowledge, not neuroscience that already kind of was used for decades. But now neuroscientists can actually prove that cognitive loads make you more likely to just press yes when it's under pressure, that if you hide the fees until the very end, people are already committed to them and, and, and so on. So, so in that sense, we are very navigatable, but I would say that it's not as kind of clear cut as to you have no free will. Still, at any point, people make decisions that surprise us.
0: Is the idea of a bad decision sometimes a matter of hindsight? A decision could have been a good one, but we were circumstances beyond our control, sort of affected it, or we've decided afterwards that it was a bad decision and because we bring our
1: subjective interpretation onto the things we've done. Very much so. It's, it's kind of like a what is sadness and happiness. You go through a bad breakup. It seems like the end of the world right now. You wait a year. You meet the love of your life and you say, oh, my God, I'm so thankful to have had this thing and ended it. Over time, we reframe a lot of our kind of experiences. That's a feature of the brain, not a bug. It, it's an amazing thing that we can take our memories from the past and constantly update them to see the same event in different light. What we suggest, for instance, to our students when we teach them about decision making is a first principle. We tell them, in the next 10 days, keep a diary. And every time you're about to make a choice, write the options you had and the conditions you were at. I was alone, I was with Luke, it was morning, it was evening, I was hungry, I was full, I was emotional, I wasn't, it was before that. Whatever you can glean from the moment, just write in diary without judging. Just write, I had three options, steak, salmon and salad, I choose the salmon, this is what happened, move on. And at the end of the 10-day period, that's when you look back in your diary, only then when you finished, and you look at all the choices you made, and then you rank them. You say this was a good one, bad one, thumbs up, thumbs down. And you try to score all the choices backwards when it's already been some time from the choices, and then you try to see for all the good ones, is there anything that is common to all of them? And same for the bad ones. Am I always with Luke when I make great decisions? Am I always with my best friend when I make bad ones? Am I always in the morning? When... And somehow, even a 10-day period where you just write down choices, and The conditions that were around them, you'll end up seeing some patterns that are enough for you to say, for the next 10 days, I'll try to work it out so the ones I want to make that are critical are gonna be done in the optimal situation for me.
0: So I was wondering that. Can you use that sort of data? Say you did keep a decision diary to then counter the amount of bad decisions you make? Can you use that to almost improve your life?
1: Yes, absolutely. We have several kind of criteria. We almost give students frameworks of things that they could do to make better decisions. And and the list is not too long, but it involves things like knowing yourself as item number one, the more you know about your own kind of optimal states, you can control that. We suggest learning about uh, biases, which is always a good idea. Kind of Know that you tend to buy the things in the middle rather than in the corners, that you try to go for defaults. If, if the default option is to do this, you just do that. That you're impacted, say, by what people before you said. And, and if 10 people said yes, you're going to say yes, even if it's not true. Those are another things. We talk about knowing uh, your way with numbers, not just statistics, but having some kind of thresholds. So that's another kind of thing we teach our students. We talked about what we call red team. Red team is the idea that it's usually a good idea to assign in advance a person that you call your red team, that's a term from the military, or easier term would be devil's advocate, that's a friend or someone you trust whose job is to counter your decisions. And you know that they're doing it to help you. And they come to you and they say, maybe you should consider not marrying her. I know that you've been together for the last two years. I know that you proposed. I know that the wedding is tomorrow. But I'm for prison. I'm telling you, you've been in this situation two times before. It always up Pooley, don't do it. And you're supposed to argue with them and give you a chance to... Have someone reflect this kind of, you know, other side of yours that maybe isn't getting a lot of attention because everyone's afraid to say that. And if you assign them, they're more likely and so on.
0: That's amazing. And in terms of this sort of decision-making process and trying to learn how to make our decisions better, I'm interested in this the way that, that companies are able to use our decision-making habits to sell things to us. Can we train ourselves to resist
1: their kind of devious corporate ways? <laughs> so it's funny because I teach both ends. I'm teaching the senior leaders of those companies when they come to the business school how decision-making works in the brain so they can use it. And then most of the times they sit there and they say that's awful. I don't want to do it. It's like as a customer, and I say, okay, great. So if you don't like it as a customer, remember that when you're a CEO, don't do it as well. So you know, if you don't like the, the price of the I don't know cereal is six ninety nine, knowing that it's actually seven, but it's kind of tricking our brain. When you're a customer, make sure you don't use it as the owner of the supermarket. And they all have this uh, kind of battle between trying to maximize. How they do things versus trying to protect themselves. We can protect ourselves. The list of kind of techniques that are being used to nudge us, that's the term we use, into a decision is finite. It's not small. There are kind of dozens of things, but they're finite. And the good thing about them is once you know them, it doesn't work. I'll give you an example. There's a classical thing uh, in supermarkets that says that if you go to a supermarket to buy something and you don't know much about this thing, typically you use the supermarket's shelf to learn. So if you're about to buy in wine for dinner and you don't know anything about wines, you go to the shelf, there's on the left the cheap bottles of wines, they cost 5 to $10. On the right, there are the expensive ones, they cost $50. And you learn from that that the range of prices goes from 5 to 50 And you say, okay, I'm not going to be a cheap person, I'm going to be a great friend, but I'm not going to buy the most expensive one. So I'm going to bring to dinner the $25 one. And you go to the center and you buy that. And the supermarket knew that, so they stacked the shelf perfectly with the intent to make you buy the $25 one mostly. And if they tomorrow change their policy and they want to make you buy the $50 one, all they do is they now add a lot of $100 bottles on the right, making the range now go from zero to 100. If you don't know anything, you say, okay, I guess zero or five, sorry, is the cheapest, 100 is the most expensive, I'm going to get the middle one, the 50. And in that sense, it's a bias that impacts a lot of people. Supermarkets can show that they just put a few bottles on the right and people immediately increase the price that they use by $10, $15. But now that you know that, if you go to the supermarket and you say, okay, I just learned about default or middle bias, it's called middle bias. I know what it is. I immediately go to the supermarket before I even start saying, I'm going to use the supermarket's kind of shelf to learn something. But I also predecide that I'm going to spend $20. That's what I'm going to spend. And you just look to the kind of left is part of the shelf and you still commit to yourself. And it's a really simple thing that if you know about the bias, you know how it works, doesn't work anymore. How do government entities as well as corporate ones use this? It's very similar. The interesting thing is that we're against. So in a way, if we have the mentality that says basically I'm being manipulated all the time and everyone's against me and so on, then it's really a cautious experience where you kind of go to the supermarkets or read a form by the government to look at taxes, all of them with the assumption that someone is trying to get you. You could also look at it the opposite way. Governments know our flaws and they nudge us to do a good job in preventing them. So pensions, for instance, is something that the governments assume that if you just were given money right now, or you were told you can please save the money somewhere and not use it until you're 70, and that's going to you probably won't do it. Because we are flawed and we tend to favor the here and now to the, to the future. So the government tricks us into keeping money in some kind of remote account that's going to come back to us when we're 65, 70. And that's a way of the government knowing how we make decisions poorly. We favor the here and now to the future and tricking us into doing something that's better for us. And in that sense, I think that the key thing is we know how the brain works. We know how people make decisions poorly and well. And now we can use that to help them. We can say humans are going to choose the fatty candy always at the expense of the salad because their savannah brain is going to favor sugar now, then the health later. So, but I'm the government and my job is to help them. I'm going to make it so that the price of the candy is going to be higher because of taxes and I'm going to nudge them towards salad. Or I'm going to put the salad's eye level in the supermarket and put the candy high up or down below. So all of those small things make an impact and here the government could be your aid in fighting your own brain. So we can kind of make it a game there's like you, your brain, and your brain is uh, working against you to some extent, and the government helps you fight your brain to make better things for your health.
0: So, we've heard that any decision-making, good or bad, is mainly influenced by outside factors, often the behavior of others. The sheer amount of decision-making we do daily is a high drain on our energy. So how can we manage this in our lives?
1: Decisions are cognitive load, we call that. So you make a choice, regardless of whether the choice was good or bad and so on, just having made a choice is a tax on your brain. To the extent that we can actually look at the brain and see that when you finish making the choice, when you just made the choice, even if it's a poor one, you feel a boost of happiness, so to speak, chemically in the brain, that just comes from, okay, one down, I made this thing. So what we suggest, first of all, is stacking the choice differently. So so don't put all the choices in one kind of time window where you're really kind of doing one after the other and, and you you're you know, like overloaded by them. And that's actually what people normally don't do. They normally wake up in the morning, let them look at all the emails, they deal with them. And in that sense, they kind of put all the choices in one window and choice number 10 looks a lot worse than choice number one just because it came after nine choices. If you kind of spread them differently, you can do that. Personally, Just knowing that helps me stagger the choices differently in the day. I also get help. So I say, basically, I know my profile, and I know that I make decisions better in the morning than in the evening. If I have to make a choice in the evening, I say I need help. So I need one more person who's an evening person, choice-wise, to be the first person to look at those choices, and I'm going to be the second one. And this way, I kind of spread the choices across brains, and this helps a lot. And I think that generally, there are enough knowledges among scientists about the brain that can be utilized here that i make a lot of use of when it comes to for instance knowing that some choices can be pushed into different moments and you benefit from that so choices that are critical typically are done well if you make the choice on time t1 and then you don't announce it until time t2 and you just sit with it so you basically make the choice, you, you're going to buy an expensive house, instead of waiting until the very last moment and then buying it and then immediately kind of putting the offer, you actually say buy it on Sunday morning, but you don't let anyone know until the following Sunday and you give yourself one week to just sit with the choice you already made and see how it sits with you. And those are techniques that I use many times personally because I know that I benefit from that. I, I usually change my mind multiple times and I come back and I when I set finally the choice, it's one that I'm solid on. Do you think we dwell on bad,
0: in inverted commas, decisions and sort of blow them up out of proportion? Can bad decisions be a
1: stick with which we like to beat ourselves? So it's, it's interesting to think about it this way. We mostly think of choices as a fork, and we spend a lot of time thinking about the up to the fork and the choice itself. You had to either buy a house or not. You spent a lot of time. You gather information. You ask friends. You did this Excel table of pros and cons. You put the number, and then you made a choice, and that's when we stop. But the reality is, from the brain's perspective, there's another stage, which is the post-decision. First of all, the brain waits to see how it plays out so it can learn. And also there's elements of what it leaves us with, legacy, how the next choice I'm going to make be part of the choice that I made prior. Did I have bad experience? Is it traumatic? And so on. And there are very little kind of studies and efforts on post-decision analysis. We kind of move on when it happens. So we surely benefit from doing occasionally what kind of suggesting a dwelling thing. Occasionally, it's a good idea to come back to choices, almost doesn't matter which ones, and just reflecting backwards and say, okay, it's been six months since I made the choice to buy this house. How happy am I? How would I do if I had a different choice? And and we, we basically suggest playing two types of games. One game is you ask the question, if I were right now, knowing what I know, being in the same position that I was six months ago, would I make the same choice? So essentially, think about it in a kind of classic example. You're married for 20 years. There's an inertia in this marriage. And in a way, you when you say, how happy am I? You're not really asking, would I be starting it again today? You're asking like something about the past. What we suggest is like, suggest for a second that you're not married. Would you, knowing everything you know, now propose to her today? Not just like, will you continue after 20 years, one more day? If it was... A choice that you were to make today from zero, would you propose? That's a way to kind of trick your brain to ask the question, not just like, okay, I've been here for a while, sunk cost. I'm already in it. Would I continue? But would I start that? And that's one thing. Another thing we do, which is really interesting, is something that we call pre motem Post-mortem, everyone knows the body is dead and you do an autopsy and try to understand what happened. pre motem is a mental game you play with yourself where you're about to make a choice and you ask the question, let's say it all failed. I'm about to buy the house. I played the game in my mind that I bought the house and six months later, it all falls apart. I can't pay the mortgage. It's a terrible decision and so on. And I'm looking back in six months towards today and I ask what signs were there today that could have predicted it's a bad choice that I missed. So you assume bad and you try to look backwards from this imagined future and ask the question, what things were there that I could have used to predict it's going to be bad? And then you say, well, I assume that the money, that the market's going to go up because it always have been up but it's now three years after and the market have gone gone and we didn't see it coming so now i can predict that and see how i create guardrails for that or i assume that she's going to say yes because we've been together for five years now i'm six months after she said no They say how could i have missed the fact that she says no when i proposed to her oh well you know what she sometimes said to me that she's not ready for marriage but i overlooked it because we're together for two years and i proposed still and here i am alone those games we call pre-mortem are very helpful to think about the post decision and not just stay with the pre so I'm actually
0: feeling a strange sense of positivity, because it's almost like what you're saying, that there's no such thing as a bad decision. It's Everything is an opportunity to grow and learn and make better decisions in the future that probably won't be bad decisions again in themselves.
1: I say that like, some decisions are bad. You will experience them in, in bad. I'm thinking about it more like happiness or experiences of failure in life. You will have sad moments. When you look back in your deathbed in life, you will classify some events as sad and bad and poor choices or failure. It's just that there are two things that come with it. A, without the failures, you don't have happiness. So without the bad things, you wouldn't know how to evaluate the good ones. So you will have some bad choices in life, but they are necessary to define the good ones. And the key thing is how you learn from that. Failure is going to happen. But if the failure on day one makes you less likely to fail on day two, it becomes a better choice, even though it was probably a bad one if the sadness of the breakup or of the terrible experience of day one makes you evaluate life differently on day two and you're happier and you make better decisions afterwards it was a good one even though it was a bad one and in that sense you can reframe every choice as a good one based on what happens afterwards
0: When it comes to the end of a relationship, it always feels like we're in the mire and the worst decision we've ever made. Yet give it time and the reality is that it usually turns out to be one of the best. What we need to do when we feel overwhelmed by the choices in front of us is take a step back, reflect, engage our red team and understand that decision making is a vital part of our personal evolution. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Professor Moran Surf. Thank you very much, Luke. It's a pleasure. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition. And follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Luke Turner asking... Why? See you next time. Why was written and presented by Luke Turner. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by Jim Parrott, and our theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production.